Podcastle, episode 351, for February 20th, 2015. Hoyerwerk, by Heather Rose Jones. Rated PG. Hello, and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Amal Al-Muhtar, delighted to be addressing you all directly for the first time. It feels like I've achieved some kind of podcastle hat trick. I've narrated stories here, had my own stories narrated by other fabulous people, and now I get to speak to you from the host's chair, which in my case is a kind of ergonomic Pilates ball thing, anyway. This is all thanks, of course, to Dave Thompson and his remarkably persuasive eyelashes and their relentless batting in my direction. Better keep those peepers a secret, Dave, or who knows what shadowy government agency might turn up on your doorstep requesting, a little too politely, that you put them to more patriotic use. This week, we have a story inspired by the Mabinogion, a medieval collection of Welsh fairy tales I've loved for half my life. If you know anything at all about me, you'll know I'm a sucker for stories where women fight for each other, rescue each other, and love each other. And this one's got all that and elements of Welsh language as well. I'm particularly delighted about that because in my severely Celtophilic teenagehood, I took two semesters worth of Welsh, mostly because the Irish and Scottish Gaelic courses were already full. I was 16, painfully ignorant, and unaware of the fact that residents of Wales spoke a language that wasn't English. To my surprise and delight, Welsh turned out to be the Celtic language I'd wanted all along. Most of the harp pieces I was learning had Welsh titles, which I'd now be able to pronounce. Most of the fairy tales I'd loved as a child turned out to be Welsh, not Irish. And the grammar, syntax, and sound of Welsh are actually very similar to those of Arabic which is uh, one of my native languages. Admittedly, all I remember now is how to say it's raining, my hinburu glau, it's snowing, my hinburu era, and I have a terrible headache, my hinpentos of nadwe. But in this world of climate change and postmodern ennui, those sentences serve me pretty well. Podcastle is very proud to present Hoiverg, a podcastle original written by Heather Rose Jones and read by Sarah Goldman. Heather Rose Jones grew up with tales very similar to this one. Her debut historical fantasy novel, Daughter of Mystery, came out from Bella Books in 2014, and its sequel, The Mystic Marriage, is scheduled to appear in April 2015. She has a running research blog called The Lesbian Historic Motif Project, presenting research of interest to writers of historically grounded lesbian characters. You can find that project at hrj.livejournal.com. Sarah Goldman used to publish as Sarah Vickers, but now gives all her literary time to Podcastle and says... I'm honoured to have done some editing for some wonderful writers, including Anne Leckie, Carolyn Ives-Gilman, and our very own Anna Schwind. So settle in, 
listen for the sound of crying gulls, and enjoy the story. Hoyerweg by Heather Rose Jones Read by Sarah Goldman Elin vergwyrgoch oedd ar aglois a cantref marwadion wrth na bor i thad na mabion na brother a thraigl waith dathfot an meddol vanat a hela ar oedd dile to cwn hi gwelach lef gwylian ac edrych i fanu arni a troi a sani wrthi a thyna sam helell o mor a canner a gwelly, ir gorav, a cadewat, quaveroth morthith, pamadello, a flan caralach. Us coloth gwalian an oilio, sev manay an oilio amdanat. A thranoch cavathi, a gorach a methol, a thaili, a nevel, a kangoro, a mgalliaith, a oi tridoithi Ellen, the daughter of Gwyrgoch, ruled over the cantrev of Marodion, for her father had neither sons nor brothers, and one day it came into her mind to go hunting. As she was riding after the hound, she heard the cry of a seagull and looked up to see a white bird circling overhead. She marvelled at it, for her lands were far from the sea, and then she remembered what her foster sister Morvith had said when they parted on the shore by Karalach. When you hear a gull crying, that will be me crying for you. And the next morning she took leave of her household and her warriors and her counsellors and rode west for the sea. The scent in the air was just as I had remembered it, sharp and rich at the same time. I'd seen and heard the girls for hours before my path topped the hill and the wide expanse of the Irish Sea spread out before me. The land curved to embrace it, gathering an armful of harbour to hold close and safe against winter storms. And there, where the hills rose past the outlet of the Laughing River, the timbered walls and halls of Kairalach stood. My eyes were not for the court, but for the cluster of ships pulled out on the narrow slip of sand, ships with the look and build of Ireland. I let my horse pick her own way down to the shore and across the shifting flats where the tide had run low. Then we climbed the hills again to the eastward side where the gates of Kairalach opened. The men who watched the gate I knew of old Though the last time they'd seen me I had been a wild hoyden, racing my pony along the beach and daring Morvith to explore the treacherous caves under the cliffs. Neither one knew me at first, until I called out, Ha! Maurag! Am I so changed? Then their faces split into grins, and one answered, Ellen! He corrected himself quickly. Lady, you've come in time, just barely. With the foreboding already resting on my shoulders, his words would have chilled my heart if they had not been spoken with such cheer. In time, I asked. For the wedding feast, came the answer. I scarcely noticed as they called for a stable boy to take my horse and gave me the escort to the hall. Music and laughter spilled from the, out of the doors into the frosty air. The room within was crowded and smoky and rich with the savour of roasting meat. My eyes darted to the upper end of the hall. A strange, red-bearded man sat in the place of honour with Morfeth to one side and her parents to the other. Morvis' eyes met mine with an air of wild disbelief, of mingled hope and despair. I saw how she sat, as far at the end of the bench as she could from the stranger, and I saw the white pallor of her skin against the raven darkness of her hair, and the dark shadows underneath her eyes. I saw her lips shape the word please, and though I could not do more than guess at what had gone before, now I knew the shape of what had called me here. The gatekeeper, Maurag, announced the name and rank and a hush fell over the company as they turned to look, those of the court in surprised recognition and strangers in curiosity. 
Morvith's mother leaned in close to the red-bearded stranger, whispering something to which he nodded. Morvith's father half rose, staring at me in something between apprehension and guilt. Foster father, how does it come that I was not invited to Morvith's wedding feast? I asked boldly, seizing the advantage that I saw. If I had known, I would have brought rich gifts. Instead, I must stand here, a supplicant at your gates. Morvith's father sat once more, his look doubtful and nervous. There was no time. We did not mean to slight you. His words trailed off. I had no doubt that they were true. When I was called home, he had been glad enough to see the last of me, but he would not have let that stand in the way of his own interests. Mordvith was my foster sister. It would be a shame not to bring rich gifts to her wedding. What have you come seeking? He asked with more confidence. I turned from him and eyed the stranger who stared at me in bemused fascination. I have heard tales of the great Irish queens of olden times, but I think that they do not now have a place for female lords. I think that he was trying to find a word to put to me, and for my part I must judge him quickly. Could I lead him to rash promises, or would he be wary? I said to my foster father, I seek nothing from you today, but you, my lord, I asked, addressing the Irishman, today is your wedding day, and it is right for you to make gifts and grant boons to all who come before you. It is with you that my errand must be today. And though it galled me, I knelt before him with my arms upraised. He smiled a little smugly and reached over to take Morvith's hand in his. She allowed it, hardly noticing for her gaze was locked on me. So it is, he said, and whatever you ask, if it is legal and honourable for me to give, you shall have it. I caught my lip between my teeth as I rose. It was not the promise I had hoped to get, but perhaps it would be enough. The lady at your side, I said, is my foster sister, and she is dearer to me than life itself. When you marry her and take her home to Ireland, I will never see her again in this world. Give her leave to visit me in my court for a year and a day before she weds you. His eyes went wide, and he looked over to Morvith's father for advice, protesting, That is impossible. I pressed my advantage. It is legal. No one can claim that it is not. And how could it not be honourable to cherish the bonds of fosterage? I looked meaningfully in the other well-born Irish strangers in the hall. He could not dismiss that claim in the face of his own foster brothers. You will have the rest of your life. Grant her to me for one year. I could see the thoughts flitting through his mind. An empty-handed voyage home, returning in a year to another round of whatever tears and pleas and threats it had taken to bring a white-faced Mordvith to sit stiffly by his side. But then the sweetening of her dowry he could expect for the delay and the thoughts of Mordvith herself. When I saw that smouldering in his eyes, my fingers curled into fists, frightening me with the force of my emotions. Was it only that Mordvith so clearly dreaded him? If she had smiled and pressed close to him, would I still long to feel my hands on his throat? But at last he nodded. Indeed, what else could he do? Mordvith's father beckoned to me. Come, sit beside me for the feast. There is no need to waste it. In the morning we will begin to prepare things for her visit, and you can ride ahead to make ready. No. I would not fall into that trap, but for now I smiled and sat to share in the feast. I remember nothing of that evening, not the taste of the meat, nor the sound of the harping, nor any of what I must have said to my foster father. But when the time had come for the revelry to end, Mordvith came to me and took me by the hand and led me to her bedchamber. The room had been prepared for the bride and groom with sweet-scented wood on the fire and soft linens on the bed and a pitcher of mead on the table in case the wine that had flowed at dinner had not been enough to calm a maiden's fears. And while I poured a cup for each of us, she set a bar across the inside of the door. Will you drink, I asked. 
I think that she had touched nothing during the feast. No, she said, and then yes. She took the cup and drank a long draught before setting it aside. Then she fell into my arms and began weeping. I stroked her long black hair and whispered, hush, hush, until she stopped. I have given you a year, I said, but at the end of it, Garvin will still be there. What will reconcile you to this marriage? I knew from her look that it had been the wrong thing to say. She pulled away from me wordlessly and went to stand by the fire. She had ever been so when something worried her, and I would always need to tease and coax it out of her. But this time, when I turned her face toward mine, she opened her mouth as if to speak, then shook her head. The girl, I thought, had been easier to follow. A line from a poem came to my lips. Bright girl, where tonight is the passion that drew me like a star. The poet lamenting a girl's maddening silence. Her eyes burned. Where is the passion, if it drew you, need you ask? I shrugged in confusion. It was only a poet's fancy. She turned away angrily and was silent once more. I was tired from riding and tired from the long, uneasy feast. Whatever her sorrow was, I would have a year to draw it out of her. I laid aside my cloak and stripped off my riding clothes, still splattered by mud. It was the softest sounds that made me turn, the whisper of a gown falling to the floor. She held out her hand to me and whispered, Ellen, a fire coursed through me and burned away the mist from my mind. I stepped toward her, pulled like a fish on a hook. We had shared a bed all through our youth, but there was no mistaking this invitation for those innocent days. The smooth sheets chilled me, but the touch of her skin burned. She showed me, as she had not been able to tell, why Ireland should not have her, and we made of it a marriage bed after all. We rose early in the morning, before those with thicker heads could wake, and took short leave of her parents. I set her up before me on my horse, not because we could not have had a second for the asking, but for the joy of twining my arms around her as we rode. And when we came through the gates of my court, the household greeted her and welcomed her as my sister. Only we knew differently, though many soon guessed. We were not separated that year, by day or by night, and only the turning of the seasons cast a shadow. When the year was done and we returned to Kairalach, twenty men of my retinue rode with us, with pack horses carrying gifts and a brace of greyhounds for my foster father. The Irish ships were on the shore once more. Morvith drew her course to a stop when she saw them. I hoped you would not come, she said. I edged my horse next to hers and leaned closer to whisper, Never fear, he shall not have you. Do as I have said and I will arrange things. She sighed and turned her face to kiss me. When we came within the walls, it was the hardest thing I had ever done to lift her down from her horse and watch her slowly walk to greet her parents. The hall was crowded that day with my men and guests, as well as the Irishmen. I waited until my foster parents had sat and Garvin sat beside them. I saw him looking around impatiently for Morvith and came forward to address him. A year and a day have passed, I said, and I thank you for your generosity. But now that my day has come, it is not easy for me to say farewell. I signalled two of my men in the doorway behind me. You have travelled far and at great expense to win a bride. It would not be right for you to return home empty-handed, but perhaps you would find these gifts sufficient to please you in her stead. The two men came in bearing a sack the size of a small child and laid it on the floor before him, opening it to show silver vessels and horse trappings set with blue gems and fine garments trimmed with marten. He barely glanced at the treasures and said, I am not to be bought. I will have my bride. I watched his face carefully. 
I could hear his men muttering around the tables. The steward frowned from his place by the door, impatient to serve the feast. I signalled the men once more, and four of them left through the door. And you have been promised a fine dowry, I continued, as if nothing had been said. It should not be said that you were the worst for it if you should change your mind. The four men returned, struggling under the weight of a sack the size of a half-grown boy. They laid it beside the other one and opened the mouth enough to show the glow of golden plates and jewellery set with red gems and garments embroidered with silk and pearls. I could see the faintest spark of greed light his face, but he looked to either side of his companions, and I could tell that he feared to lose face by withdrawing his claim. He paused a long moment while those around the table whispered curiously, and at the end of the hall, the cook looked in to see what the delay was and scowled furiously. Garvin shook his head. Your gold is not brighter than her eyes. I will have my bride. I would have smiled too if I had dared. He had given me the answer I needed. I turned to my men and signalled them once more. Eight of them filled out through the door. I faced him again and said, it would not be right if you did not get face price. Were you to give her up? There would be no shame if you accepted compensation. My tongue lingered on the word shame and left it lying like a serpent on the floor of the hall. The eight men returned, bent double under the weight of a sack the size of a fully grown youth. They set it beside the others and loosened the mouth of the sack enough to show the glint of the finest gold brocaded silk. Enough of this, he said impatiently. You may keep your treasures. I will have my bride. I stepped forward and gestured toward the sex. You have no interest in what I have offered? You refuse to take what you see before you and sail away in peace? He rose from behind the table. You test my patience, woman. I needed something different from him. You will make no claim on what is in these sacks? No, he thundered. I think he realised in that instant what he had done. I pulled open the mouth of the largest sack and lifted aside the veil of gold brocade. Morvith stepped out from it and took her place at my side. Then you have made a poor bargain, I said. But all here stand witness to your words. My men closed the sacks again and bore them from the hall. I turned and bowed to my foster father. I have won her fairly from the man you gave her to. But this feast was prepared for him and not for me. I shall not begrudge him that. I took Morvith by the hand and drew her from the hall. Better to ride away now than to give him time to think. What needed mending could be done later. My men had the horses ready once more. I lifted Morvith into her saddle. And what if he had said yes? Morvith asked as we crossed the lapping river and climbed into the hills. What if he had taken the price? I pulled my horse to a stop as we crested the rise and looked out over the grey sea where the gulls circled and mewed. If he had taken the first sack... We would have won, I said, taking her hand and kissing it. And if he had taken the second sack, we still would have won. And if he had taken the third sack, she asked. I smiled. Ah, but if he were the thought to take the third sack, I would have known it by the second. And there was a different sack standing ready. One of the girls broke away from the others and flew east into the hills. I set my horse's head to follow it. It would have been a heavy price, but I would have paid it gladly. It was late in the afternoon when we left Karalach, and soon it grew too dark to continue. We made our camp in Kumnant, and for the first time in a year I lay in Morvith's arms with no shadow between us. When we rose and mounted in the morning, Morvith looked back along the track and said, I thought I heard dogs barking and the blowing of horns. I listened, but there was only the stamping and snorting of our horses eager to be gone. Perhaps it was the sheep on the far hillside you heard, I said. We rode on that day and into the evening and came to the abbey of Llandawenen and spent the night in the guest house there.
and in the morning we mounted again and rode on. As the sun rose to noon, Morfith paused on the rise of a hill and looked down the valley. I thought I heard the neigh of a horse and the sound of men shouting, she said. I motioned my band to stand silently and listened, but I heard nothing. Cariad, I said, perhaps it was only the stream and the eagle circling there on the mountain, and the muttering of the river on the stones. She looked at me sharply. Ellen, I know the difference between a horse and an eagle, and between a sheep and a hunting horn. I listened again, but still I could hear nothing, and finally Morfith shook her head and led us on. We spent that night on the hill of Dinvran, where the bones of an ancient fortress give shelter from the wind, and in the morning we rose and mounted, and soon the walls of my court were in sight. As we reached the gate, Morvith said, I can hear the sounds of horses galloping behind us on the road. I turned, still doubting her, and saw the dust of a troop of riders at the foot of the valley, and I knew that it must be Garvin following out after us. So we went to the court and closed the thick oak doors at the gatehouse and made ready to receive him. When the riders came close enough to see the closed gates and my warband standing on the walls, they slowed to a walk and came forward as if they were ordinary travellers. Morvith Suter rode up to the gatehouse and roared out my name. I looked down at him from the wall walk and said, I'm here. He stared up at me, squinting a little in the brightness of the sky, and said, You have shamed me and insulted me with your trick. When have I ever done wrong to you? His words struck deeply, and yet I could not have done otherwise. It was not I you wronged, I said at last, but Morvith. But it is true that I owe you compensation and I will pay you your face price, as if you are a man of my own country. And though I had been willing to pay dearly to win Morbeth free of him, now that I had her safe, I found I grudged him what I offered him. I think he had expected me to put him off. He sat and thought for a long moment, while his horse stamped and pawed impatiently. Then he said, I will ask nothing in goods or gold if you will give me three boons. My first thought is that he must think me mad or simple. My second was that I might pay him cheaply after all. I will promise nothing unheard, I said. Ask your boons and then I will decide. And if you ask more than is seemly to give, you will need to content yourself with what the law allows to you. He nodded in agreement so quickly that I wondered, but he asked only, give a feast for me and my men, and let Morfith serve me with her own hands. I turned his words this way and that, looking for some trap, but there seemed no hidden danger. For my part, you may have the feast, I answered, but it is for Morvith to grant the other. She had joined me there on the walls, and she answered in a clear, sweet voice, Ellen, now that I am the lady of your court, it is right that I should serve your guests at table, welcome them, and let them come in. And so the gates were opened, and they came in, while the men of my warband watched them like hunting hawks. My steward sent the cooks to roasting meat and baking bread, and by the time evening fell, there was a feast prepared for them that would not shame my hospitality. Garvin sat in the guest's place, and his men were scattered thinly among the people of my court, so that they would be less inclined to make trouble. But though I watched him closely, there was nothing I could complain of, unless it were that he looked more hungrily at Morvis than at the meat. When the food was served and Morvith took her place at my other side, we passed the evening in pleasant conversation, as if we had been the best of companions. I thought that I had never spent a stranger evening. When the feasting was finished and it was time to go to sleep, I rose from the table and said to him, My steward will arrange your beds, and in the morning you may tell me your second boon. I will tell it to you now, he said lightly. I ask that I may spend this night lying beside Morvith in the same bed. 
A red rage came over me, and had it not been for Morveth's hand on my arm, I might have killed him where he stood. But I looked at her, and a knowing smile twitched at the corners of her mouth. And so I answered instead, though the words choked in my mouth. That is for Morveth to grant or not, as she chooses. And she laughed like the song of a lark, and said, What you have asked, only that and no more, I will grant you. Let a bed be prepared here in the hall, and let Ellen and her men watch over us all night. And though we may lie in the same bed, if you touch me, you shall be the worse for it. And so I ordered it done. A mattress was brought forth and laid in the middle of the hall with sheets and blankets on it. And when Morvith lay on one side and Garvin on the other, I took my sword and stabbed it through the bed between them, through the linen and straw and into the earth. And I stood and I watched over them with my men raged on either side until sunrise lit the lintels on the door. Not one within that hall slept that night. And when morning came and the bed was taken up and put away, I turned to the Irishman and said wearily, If your third boon is like to your second, then you may save your breath and look to the law for your compensation. But he smiled amiably and said, It is time for my men and I to depart. And for my third boon I ask only this, that when we are mounted and ready before your gates, I may have one farewell kiss from Morvith's lips. I was relieved that it was so modest a request, and so eager to see him gone that I said at once, Yes, yes, you may have it, if that will quit you. But when he had left together his men and see about their horses, Morvith pulled me aside angrily and said, My lips are yours, but not to give away. How could you be such a fool? I was so tired I could only stare at her. Don't you see what he means to do, she asked. "'mounted outside the gates with all his men around. "'As soon as I am within his reach, "'it will be up and away with you left to tumble after.' "'And as soon as she said it, I knew it to be true. "'But I had promised, ill-advised though it was. "'What are we to do?' I said. "'I will have my men mount up and wait within the gates.' "'She shook her head and placed a finger on my lips. "'Better to outwit him than it should come to fighting. "'But how?' And she thought, and a wind came up roaring through the trees outside like the sound of the sea, and the gull cried overhead, its call echoing strangely in the hall as if in a cave. Morvith smiled suddenly and said, Do you remember when we first kissed? I thought about that night in the chamber a year before and frowned in confusion, trying to see what she meant. We were, when we were children, in the sea cave, she continued. The memory came to me as if it had been yesterday. Was that when Morvith was first known? when we had been playing in the treacherous caves at the end of the point, and following different passages through roaring green-dappled dark, we had suddenly come face to face to where a window pierced the cave wall between us, and giggling we had leaned forward to kiss through the window. Morvith's smile was echoed on my face, and I said, I will tell the carpenter to find a gimlet. When the Irishmen were all mounted on their horses before the gates, Morvith and I came to stand within the gatehouse. Garvin looked eagerly towards her and beckoned with his hand. One kiss, and I am paid, he said. And at that, my men swung the gates to and laid the bar across them. Morvith stepped up onto a barrel to look out through the hole board just where a man's head would be when he sat on a horse. And I climbed to the wall walk and gestured down at the gate. There you are, I said. You are mounted and ready before the gates, and you may have your farewell kiss. He raged and swore and would have ridden away, but I called out to him, You could have had cattle and silver as the Lord men's, and I would have paid willingly. It was you who chose the shameful trick this time. Take your kiss so you can call your face price paid. You will get nothing more here unless it would be a greater insult. Then he sidled his horse up to the gate and leaned over to press Morbeth's mouth with his own and rode away without speaking another word. 
we never saw him again, and if the tale tells rightly, he never sailed across the sea to seek a bride. In time, Morvith gave me for giving her kisses away, but she demanded that I pay them back many times over before that day came. And welcome back. One of the things I loved most about this story was how much consent was linked to plot. Elian is able to outsmart Garvan each time by respecting Morvith's agency. The moment she presumes to make a decision on Morvith's behalf is the moment Garvan seems to have won, because, without realizing it, Ellen has treated Morvith the way a property-owning husband would. I just loved that, and loved that it was addressed, and that that is the obstacle that Ellen and Morvith overcome by working together. Feedback this week is for Podcastle episode 341, Balfour and Merriweather in the Incident of the Harrowmore Dogs, by Daniel Abraham, read by Paul Jenkins. Kibitzer says, Fabulous. This one struck me as the most Holmesian, in tone, so far. For me, it evoked that Doylesian flavour of late 1800s London at every turn. Mix that with a Lovecraftian horror, something Holmes never encountered in the canon, and you have a perfect tale of adventure, intrigue, and daring do. Another fantastic tale from Mr. Abraham. J.K. Jones 21 says, It took me a long time to really get into this episode. I listened to it on a road trip this past weekend, so my lack of focus may have been because of that, but once I finally caught on to what was happening, I enjoyed it to the end. Is it weird to say that I found the denouement more satisfying than the rest of the story? Yes, the adventure with the underground dog bugs... dogs? Bogs? was exciting, but for me it was the discussion of Empire that turned the whole story on its head and made everything before it more interesting and not just a send-up of Victorian adventure. Thank you for those comments. Come let us know what you thought of the story at forum.escapeartists.net. If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Every single cent goes to paying our authors and keeping our podcast going so we can bring you the best in fantasy fiction week after week. If you can't donate, tell all your friends about us. Well, that was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone here at Podcastle, LaShawn Wanick, Graeme Dunlop, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, Anna Schwind, and Dave Thompson, thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then, this is Amal Al-Muhtar for Podcastle. Reminding you to mind your P's and Q's, your double F's, L's, and D's, and that you're almost certainly pronouncing all the character names in the Pradane Chronicles totally wrong. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. 
And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Dr. Seuss once said, You know you're in love when you can't fall asleep because reality is finally better than your dreams. <laughs>